Before we discuss how sleep can affect your health and productivity, we wanted to find out how much sleep people in our Portland community get and what strategies they use. To find out, we sent our very own Helen Shuckers. So how much sleep did you get last night and why? Uh, five hours because I stayed out late with some friends and I had to get up early for work. I usually sleep about four and a half hours. What happens is, I, is I'll wake up and I'll start thinking about work and about other things and then I have a real difficulty getting back to sleep. I got about eight and a half hours of sleep because I fell asleep with my child putting him down. But I usually get about six hours of sleep because I try to get a lot of housework done or other projects that I'm working on um, after the kids are in bed. Um, I'd say about seven hours. Well, that's a pretty good amount. Um, so on the days you don't get enough sleep, what do you do to stay awake? Um, I try to just drink one cup of coffee a day, so I drink my coffee in the morning, but then if I didn't get enough sleep, I'll add tea um, or some kind of other caffeinated beverage to keep me awake in the afternoon, because that's really where I start to, to plummet. So did you have caffeine today? Uh, I haven't had any caffeine yet. I had one cup of coffee, which is about, I think, 12 ounces today. Have you ever gone to work after a bad night of sleep? How productive were you at work the next day? Did it make you eat any differently? Drink more coffee? How about more than one night of bad sleep? Do you work the night shift? How does it affect you at work and outside of it? Sure, sleep happens at home, but doesn't your work affect it too? So what's work got to do with it? Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Andrew McHill to learn more about how sleep can impact our health, our health habits, and the implications this may have for the workplace. Andrew will help us understand what happens to our bodies when our sleep patterns are disrupted and what we can do to help improve our sleep schedules. Dr. Andrew McHill is a scientist at the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences. He has a PhD in integrative physiology with a focus on sleep in circadian physiology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Before joining us here at the Institute, Andrew was a postdoctoral fellow at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School in the Division of Sleep in Circadian Disorders. Dr. McHill is interested in understanding the mechanisms of which insufficient sleep and disrupted circadian rhythms can lead to adverse health effects and poor cognitive performance. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us this morning. So what drew you to study sleep? Well, I actually kind of stumbled into it when I was an undergrad. I saw an advertisement to work at a sleep lab and I thought this would be a great idea, you know, to be able to work at night and then go to school during the day. So I started the job and I realized that when I was working at night, I actually felt pretty terrible yeah. and wondered how people could do it. And it really got me into studying what happens when you work at night and what are the consequences. And I just love it because everybody has a sleep story. Everybody knows somebody with a sleep problem. So it's really easy to talk to people about. You know, you never have an awkward haircut because they can mm. always talk to you about something about sleep. <laughs> um, and so it's just really neat to be able to engage people with your research that way. That's really interesting. You started to study sleep, but you're really inspired to continue studying because of the impact that studying sleep at night had on you. Yeah, exactly. And how <laughs> I felt the next day trying to do class and realize it. Might not have been a great idea, but then I kept doing it for the rest of my life. So. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so I don't know. Cool. I'm a hypocrite, I guess. <laughs> well, like you work during the day here, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Well, yeah, sometimes it's all you know, it all depends. Yeah. <laughs> so you've also done some research on camping and how camping can affect sleep. Would you tell our listeners a little bit more about that study? Yeah, sure. So it was uh, when I was a grad student in Colorado, my advisor had always wanted to study the impact of artificial light 
mm -hmm. on the clock. So we know that artificial light can impact your internal biological clock, but no one knew to what extent it really did because we can change our light-dark cycle just by flipping the switch. So we had this idea, since we were all very outdoorsy in Colorado, to go out backpacking for a week without using any artificial light. So no cell phones, no flashlights, anything that emitted light we didn't use, except for a campfire, which actually emits very little light. It's just really dark all mm. around. Would the light from the fire be the same as the artificial light in terms of the impact it has on your brain? It, no, it doesn't, because it's mm. a different wavelength of light, mm. and it's actually a very small amount of light. So it just really, it seems really bright when you're out there because there's no other light around, you know, besides the moon which also has very little light, so it doesn't impact your clock. Okay, so what was the result? So we, we compared that week of camping without any artificial light to a week of just living in your modern-day electrical light-dark cycle, and we found that when you went camping without artificial light, it actually advanced your clock by about two hours. So it really synced you up to the timing of uh, sundown and then also sunrise. And mm -hmm. so the only time you got additional light during the electrical light-dark cycle was after sundown, so in that two hours, and that's when it can really uh, disrupt your clock and disrupt your sleep. And then, so that we did that in the summer, and we also did it in the winter, which wasn't as much fun because it's really cold to go winter camping yeah. in Colorado. And there's less light, right? Yeah, and there's less light, so we wanted to see what seasonal effects had, and we found that it actually elongated your night, so you went to sleep during the winter earlier by about two hours and then uh, your clock was longer by about two hours as well. And so midnight really fell right at midnight. Would there be a difference between whether someone camped for a week or for the night? Yeah, well during our winter camping study we also uh, had individuals do it for a weekend because most individuals probably aren't gonna be able to go camping for a week, especially during the winter. So we also wanted to test the effects of camping for just a weekend without any artificial lighting. And we found just two days of camping without artificial lighting had a 70% uh, of the effect of a week. So we don't know how much one day does versus two days, but we do know that two days does lead to a 70% effect. So that's still a pretty dramatic shift in your clock and does improve your sleep by quite a bit. So, you know, just that weekend getaway yeah. uh, could really be beneficial. In a natural setting, you'd sleep a little bit more then in the wintertime? Yeah, in the wintertime for sure, because your internal night is actually longer. Because wow. humans are actually seasonal, but we kind of mask our seasonality by being able to flip the switch during the winter. Mm -hmm. Was there any impact or any measurement of the exercise that you might get when you're camping versus just kind of commuting? Yeah, city? we did measure that as well. We measured activity, and our activity levels did go up during camping because we were hiking during the days, and we took all of our participants. Uh, on these pretty crazy hikes and because we mm -hmm. needed to do things while we're camping because there's yeah. nothing <laughs> there's no electronic mm. devices so you know what do you do you go hiking so that definitely could have played a role in how well the individual slept mm -hmm. during camping uh, but it wouldn't have influenced the clock because light is the major synchronizer of mm. the clock and so light is really what was driving that okay so um, it wouldn't have affected the quantity of the sleep and maybe the quality Potentially, yeah. Okay. We didn't, I mean, we didn't really measure that. We didn't have a great yeah. measurement of that sleep. We'd have to do that in the laboratory mm -hmm. um, to really get a great measurement of the sleep. But we, it definitely can influence sleep. It sounds like the modern environment isn't very conducive for healthy sleep. Well, not, not particularly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the problem with sleep is that we only go to sleep when we're sleepy. And if there are all these other things to do, going to drive us to stay awake later. You know, you can always mm -hmm. watch another episode on Netflix or you can 
you know, be scrolling through your phone and seeing what's going on on Instagram. So your priorities do kind of shift to being able to do something while you're awake rather than going to sleep. Yeah, it sounds like the environment has a huge impact. But then we also have access to all these apps on our phones. So the artificial light from the phone might be making our sleep worse, but then is the app helping? What's your opinion on those things? Yeah, it is kind of a double-edged sword because if you are using your phone to look at these apps, then you are getting exposed to that light, um, which could disrupt sleep in your clock. Um, what you can do is put a filter on your phone mm. um, to help kind of block the blue wavelength light, which tends to be the most powerful light to shift your clock or disrupt mm. your sleep. Okay. Um, so you can do that. But the apps, you know, I think the jury's still out on a lot of those apps. But I think if, it, if they make you feel better about how you're sleeping, um, that has to account for something. So if you're feeling better the next day because your app is telling you you're getting sufficient sleep or you're getting enough sleep, Mm -hmm. um, then I think that there's definitely a benefit to that. But yeah. as far as it helping to promote good sleep and so on, I don't know if the data is out on that. If you're in a workplace where you work non-traditional hours, it sounds like using the app may or may not help, but if these workplaces are more aware of the screen that you're talking about blocking the blue light, that might be helpful to them. Yeah, potentially, but you have to be careful with that as well because if you are working a night shift and you are doing a safety-sensitive jobs such as flying an airplane uh -huh. or you know performing surgery or something you do want those people to be alert so the light might not be such a bad thing if it has an alerting effect um, so okay. it's kind of you know yeah it, it's a little bit of a case-to-case -case basis which I think is what makes it so hard yeah. because as as sleep professionals and we're trying to help people in the workplace there's no just cut and dry solution not everyone needs to go to sleep at the same time or, right. or needs to wake up at the same time so it's very much on a case-to-case -case basis yeah and so what are some of the consequences that our modern environment might have on non-traditional hours at work yeah so I mean not getting enough sleep leads to uh, performance decrements next day and chronically so we've shown that just getting about five and a half hours of sleep a night in just three weeks, it led to uh, a five-fold increase in the number of attentional lapses mm -hmm. um, during daytime wakefulness. So just chronically not getting enough sleep can, can have impacts. Uh, memory isn't as good. Um, so other studies have shown that if you learn something new, if you don't get sleep the next night, you don't continue learning. Whereas if you mm -hmm. get sleep, you have these very dramatic increases in your ability to perform the task again. There are metabolic consequences, so we know that insufficient sleep and eating at the wrong time, so eating when your body is supposed to be asleep, leads mm -hmm. to weight gain, uh, trouble with glucose metabolism, uh, which done for a long enough time could lead to diseases such as diabetes. There's very recent evidence showing that eating during the night can even cause certain types of cancer. So uh, we're just, you know, we're really on the cutting edge of learning all this stuff. And OHSU and the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences, we're on the cutting edge of really looking at some of this stuff. So it's really an exciting time uh, for sleep researchers. Oh, yeah. I think I saw your name on a study at our institute's summer intern poster presentation that looked at the impact of diet on sleep, right? Yeah, so we didn't really look at it uh, in so much as how it influenced sleep, but we looked at how the timing of which you eat your meals could impact your metabolism and your body composition. Mm. Uh, so when I was in uh, Boston, we did a study where we looked at college undergraduates and how the timing of their meals in reference to their internal clock would influence their body composition. And we found that people that ate later or more towards the time in which they go to sleep mm -hmm. had a higher percent body fat than those that ate earlier. Wow. And so over the summer, I had uh, an intern look into this further and to see if eating very early in the morning, how that influenced body composition. And she found that the earlier that the individuals ate, it tended to have a maybe potentially protective effect to getting 
uh, high body fat percentage. So. Oh, wow. So it really puts the emphasis on eating more in the morning, like really trying to limit your intake at night. Yeah. And, and even interestingly, I didn't mention this before, but when uh, we did it in Boston, we found that it didn't matter what the participants were eating or how much they were eating. What mattered was when they were eating. So mm. the time of your clock may influence your body composition. Yeah. Sleep has impacts on the health of workers as well as their ability to be productive and be effective workers. Exactly. Yeah. So both both cognitively and metabolically. Are, are there some other ways that we can get around these health and productivity effects without getting more sleep? I know a lot of folks tend to compensate with caffeine, but is it a healthy solution over time? Are you able to catch up on the weekend or like by taking naps? Yeah, well, this, this is a tough question because it's definitely a lot of ongoing research. But, you know, if you're feeling tired, there are certain things that you can do, such as taking caffeine, but it's kind of like putting a bandage on a really big wound where it will help for a little bit, but eventually that sleep drive or that sleep pressure that you have is going to catch up on you. By taking caffeine, you may be disrupting future sleep. So we have a study that we uh, published that shows that taking caffeine the size of about a double shot of espresso from Starbucks, five hours before sleep can still disrupt sleep. You'll have less of the deep sleep, restorative sleep, and uh, more awakenings during the night. Also, we've shown that caffeine during the late night can also influence your clock, mm -hmm. and so that could further exacerbate problems. Uh, naps are, are very good. I mm -hmm. suggest naps, especially if you're feeling tired while driving. Mm -hmm. If you can pull over to a nice safe spot, take just about a 20-minute nap, and that should help to be restorative. Because if you're starting to fall asleep while you're driving, there's no really way to recover that besides going to sleep for a little bit. Yeah. That's the only safe way. Even if home is just not that very far away, it's probably a good idea to pull over to a safe spot and take just a quick power nap. But naps are good, but you also have to be careful when you nap. When you wake up, you may feel somewhat groggy, so you might want to give yourself a couple minutes before you start to drive again, or if you're doing something that requires lots of attention to give yourself a couple minutes. Before. Yeah, and but, I noticed you said that you recommend a 20-minute nap as opposed to a longer nap, because maybe it wouldn't be as restorative? Or? Well, it, it might be more restorative, but you're more likely to wake up groggier if you take a longer mm -hmm. nap. So we think 20 minutes is kind of a good duration to uh, restore some of that sleep pressure. You're not going to knock all of it down. You're trying to catch up just a little bit, and then you can do whatever it is that you're doing and then get a full night's sleep after that. But 20 minutes seems to be a good amount to uh, restore a little bit of that sleep pressure, but not be as groggy when you wake up. Whereas if you sleep for longer, you'll restore more of that pressure, but you'll feel groggier when you wake up. Right, and then it might make it harder to fall asleep later on. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and then kind of doing it again the next day. So just a shorter amount seems to be good. At the Institute, we try to develop interventions for all types of workers who work non-traditional work hours. For example, Dr. Ryan Olson is studying long-haul team truck drivers who drive more than 10 hours a day for 60 hours a week. Of course, driving drowsy can be very risky. Also, drivers have trouble sleeping when their partner is driving because of the noise and the vibrations from the truck and the hot or cold temperatures. And so a lot of our researchers are investigating the effects of installing a therapeutic mattress and a seat in addition to teaching drivers about the proper sleep practices, some of which you've already told us about. We'd like to end this giving our listeners some takeaways about sleep and if there's any resources that you recommend that organizations should be aware about. Yeah, so I think, you know, the biggest takeaway is that you just really can't cheat your body of sleep. You know, it's one of the three fundamental things that you need. You know, you need to be able to eat well, you need to exercise, and then you also need to sleep well. And it's something that our society as a whole kind of discounts because you feel like you can get away with not getting enough sleep, but you're really cheating your body in a number of ways, you know, more than we have time to, count, to talk about today. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the major takeaway is to try to prioritize sleep to the best of your ability because it will just help you function 
at your best. I mean, a couple resources that people can look at. Um, the National Sleep Foundation has a great website with lots of tips and lots of facts about what sleep trends are like and how you can make your bedroom conducive to sleep. And then at Harvard Medical School, they have a uh, sleep for safety website, which has a lot of videos on it and a lot of tips and things that people can use within the division of sleep and circadian disorders at uh, Harvard Medical School and the Brigham Women's Hospital. So I think that's a really great resource. And it even has a video with uh, Shaquille O'Neal getting a sleep screen and, oh, wow. and stuff like that. So it's kind of fun. Cool. And I know our uh, director, Stephen Shea, put in a lot of work to help produce that and to make that website. So Right. He's a sleep researcher as well. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for, for having sharing me. with our listeners all your expertise and all the important work that you do. All right. Thank you. You're listening to What's Work Got to Do With It, your go-to resource on all things workplace safety, health, and well-being. This has been an episode of our podcast series where we invite you into the conversation as we discuss how our workplace conditions like work hours, occupational stress, job safety, and other issues affect our lives at home and at work. We go into the science behind it all and talk about what we can do to reduce work-related risk and promote well-being. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences and is hosted and directed by Helen Shuckers, Sam Greenspan, and Anjali Ramishbabu. Our mission at the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences is to improve the lives of workers through biomedical and occupational research. Home to over 75 scientists and research staff, the Institute explores a range of questions related to the prevention of work-related injury and disease and promotion of health in the workplace. Do you have an idea for a podcast episode? want to hear from you on important workplace issues that you would like to discuss, email us at occhealthsci at ohsu.edu. Subscribe to the Oregon in the Workplace blog or our social media channels at facebook.com slash or follow us on Twitter at ohsuochhealth to stay updated on current research, resources, news, and community events.